We are in Luke 18 this morning. We're uh, sort of doing our rapid uh, trip through Luke, focusing on uh, the road to Jerusalem and what's going to take place. And uh, we have a, uh, a short text this morning. We'll just let them get out the door. All righty. What's interesting about uh, this particular passage is that it comes in the midst of a lot of uh, events talking about the kingdom of God, and that's going to kind of play into uh, the approach uh, when we talk about this particular text. Um, let's go to the, the overarching context of what's going on here. So, picking up in verse 18, uh, sorry, 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Let's pray. Father, uh, we tremble to consider that the message of the gospel uh, has been hidden from so many. Uh, Though each week the scriptures were read at the synagogue, the disciples and leaders of Israel missed the suffering of the Messiah. We praise you that you revealed the great mystery to Paul that he might proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations. And so be with me this morning as I seek to preach some of these same inexhaustible riches of Jesus, and that by the same Spirit you would enable all of us to understand, to believe, and to apply those riches for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Public humiliation is never a good thing, is it? But there's something that that turns, you know, when it's not just public like you and five of your friends, but it's on a national sort of stage. It's interesting to me, uh, you know, being a sports fan, I know not all of you are, um, watching press conferences after particularly humiliating defeats becomes rather interesting. One of them was so amusing, so to speak, unless you were, of course, um, a fan of the New Orleans Saints, uh, that it actually became a Bud Light, I think it was a Bud Light commercial, where the coach at that point, I can't remember his name, but he's, he responds to a question from the press corps, with, and he just explodes because of the, the rage of being publicly humiliated in that fashion. Playoffs? You're talking about the playoffs? And he proceeds to kind of go off on the press corps. A little closer to home, I'm reminded of, a, of an event that took place for the Cardinals when Dennis Green was the coach. And the Vikings had just come from way behind to defeat them. And he, of course, is asked a question. These reporters, they must like the theater, don't they? Because he's asked a question of what they were thinking. And, of course, Dennis Green says famously, they are who we thought they are. And he kind of just keeps repeating this phrase as his frustration builds over what happened publicly. Sometimes it's not, you know, famous events. Sometimes it's just personal stuff. For some reason this morning I was reminded of when I was in sixth grade 
and my mother had bought me colored underwear. And one day in gym class, we were, we were doing gymnastics or something, and Kevin Quigley commented, Steve has green underwear. Now, when you're in sixth grade, you don't want the whole world knowing that you're wearing green underwear. So I responded, Kevin Quigley has pink underwear, to which I was quickly chastised by the teacher. <laughs> but isn't that how we usually deal with humiliation? We seek to lash out. We, we either want to run away and hide, or we seek to lash out and vent our fury upon usually an unsuspecting sort of person. This morning, we're going to see how Jesus deals with the reality that he will experience public humiliation, and how he deals with it is very different from how we tend to deal with it. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus' long-prophesied death will be humiliating, which is why I've called this the Son of Man will be humiliated. Let's start with the first aspect of this, and that is that Jesus' suffering was predicted. Now, as I mentioned uh, in setting this up, there's a lot of talk about the kingdom that is leading up to this moment, but all of this talk about the kingdom isn't necessarily positive. Jesus, at the end of the parable of the persistent widow, says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He's not sure, so to speak. But this that, that should introduce this, this question into the minds of the apostles, well, sorry, disciples at this point, as to what he means by the fact of when the Son of Man comes. Wait a minute, aren't you the Son of Man and aren't you here? And so Jesus is already sneakily preparing them for the reality that he's going to return, that all of what he is going to do will not necessarily be accomplished. All of their agenda for the Son of Man will not be fulfilled in that time before he goes to Jerusalem. Not only that, but we see that the that Jesus says, when the, you know, in terms of the parable, sorry, not the parable, but when the rich young ruler comes to him, Jesus says after his discussion and after the rich young ruler walks away, he says it is easier for a rich man, uh, sorry, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's not a positive saying, is it? The disciples are a little uh, aghast at what he just said because in their Mindset, rich people are blessed by God. How is it in the world that the rich guy's not going to get in? How am I going to get in if the rich guy has a hard time getting into the kingdom? We find here that this is, that the disciples are relatively shaken up and that Jesus pulls them aside. Now, we don't know this from Luke, but we know this from the parallel passage in Mark 10. Okay? There's also, this is also repeated in Matthew 20. Three accounts of the same event, and they're all going to focus on different aspects of it. And so we can benefit from the fact that, uh, of what they say. And so Mark 10, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. There was amazement and fear probably not the good kind of fear, that has captured the disciples on the basis of hearing these parables and watching the interaction with the rich young ruler. Jesus wants them to know that everything is going to happen in Jerusalem. That what he says. Everything that is written will be accomplished. He's talking about the prophets. He says it specifically here. The prophets predicted everything that is about to take place in Jerusalem. 
Jesus wants them to know that his suffering here is not accidental. That it is not just something that God permits. It's not just something that's predicted, but it was prophesied by the prophets. It was revealed by the prophets precisely because it is the will and the plan and the purpose of God. It was there all the time, and they haven't seen it. It is the apostolic preaching after the resurrection that points back and stresses this reality. We see this in all through the book of Acts. Okay, It talks about how this was promised by the prophets, and they will quote the Old Testament prophets and saying that what happened to Jesus was not an accident. It's, we should have expected this. We looked at it last week a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15 where he, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he, ra- he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul is not talking about the fact that the events are recorded in Scripture as they happen, but that it, in the Old Testament, it talked about his death, it talked about his resurrection. According to those Scriptures, this happened. This isn't something merely foreseen by God. We have to reckon with the fact that this was ordained by God, that this was God's purpose and God's plan, and we see that in Acts 2, of all places. For in the midst of talking about the fact that the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, had conspired with the Gentiles to kill the Messiah, he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we find this interesting thing called concurrence, where humans are choosing to do one thing for one reason. God is choosing to do the same thing, but for a very different reason. The actions of these people was ordained by God, but for a very different reason than they pursued them. They wanted to destroy Jesus. He wanted to save sinners through his son. Okay? And so Jesus is reminding them of this reality, but also this idea that Jesus did not come to fulfill our agenda. We can easily get caught up in that mindset that Jesus somehow exists to fulfill my perfect plan for my life. Aren't we all subject to that temptation? But here Jesus is reminding, I did not come to fulfill your vision of what the kingdom is supposed to be. Your idea of what I am supposed to do as the Son of Man, as the Messiah. I have come to fulfill my Father's will, which is revealed in the Scriptures. That's why he came. Not to satisfy my agenda. And that's why he still sits upon the throne. Not to satisfy my agenda, but to bring about the will and the purpose of his Father. But our suffering is also planned and predicted by God in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul is just like Jesus. He's not pulling any punches. He's not promising us some kind of rosy future in this earthly life. 
where everyone's going to go, oh, you believe in Jesus, that's such a marvelous thing. He says, everyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just as they have hated Jesus, the ungodly will hate his people. It's there. We need to reckon with this. We we need to, to see that the death of this missionary in Yemen is not accidental. It is not, you know, merely at the whim of man, but ultimately is under the sovereignty of God for purposes that we may not understand at a particular point in time. But we have to recognize that we who are relatively insulated from the persecution that occurs throughout the world, that the farther our culture moves away from being influenced by the gospel, the more likely it becomes that we too will experience persecution. It might not happen in George's lifetime. I'm glad for you, George. Okay? It might not even happen in my lifetime, but I think it might. We see what happens in, you know, we lag behind Europe, okay? There's sort of like what happens in Europe goes over into Britain and then eventually comes here. It's sort of like, you know, like crossing a stream on the rocks, okay? Bad stuff starts in Europe, hops over to England, and then makes a big jump over to us, okay? We already see the persecution in Britain beginning to happen, okay? It's starting, We're about 10 to 20 years behind them. So watch what's going on there and know it's coming here. Okay, That's just the way it is. Jesus knew he was going to suffer because the Father ordained it. Scripture said it. And so we must be prepared to suffer just as he did because Scripture proclaims it. Second part of this was that Jesus' suffering was humiliating. Jesus, as we see here, is, as we follow along through uh, the, the times in which he stops and talks to his disciples, he's progressively revealing more information about what happens the closer they get to Jerusalem. Okay? Basically, you know, at the beginning it was just, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. But now he's, he's, he continues to add all of these things that, that we saw the betrayal was added into it. And now this time we see that he is delivered over to the Gentiles. This is one of the new developments that we see revealed, that the, the leaders of the, the Jews that he had talked about before, the priests and, the, and the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, he's betrayed into their hands, as it talks about earlier in Luke, but now we see that they are going to deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. They're going to, because they cannot kill him, as a penalty for the sins that they believe he committed, they are going to hand him into the, into the hands of the, the Gentiles who can kill him. We see that in Scripture. And, and though they found him not guilty, well, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, to have him executed. See, I knew that was in my notes somewhere. Acts 13. What happens? Jesus uses a series of three future passive verbs to explain part of what happens to him. And this is part of the new information that we receive. He will be mocked. 
He will be shamefully treated. He will be spit upon. Jesus will be made fun of, ridiculed, mocked by Jew and Gentile alike. We see this in the accounts of of, uh, Jesus' trial and his death on the cross. We see the the Gentiles, you know, blindfolding him and beating him and say, okay, prophesy, who hit you this time? We see the, the, one of the thieves upon the cross mocking Jesus. Almost I, word for word what you see in, in Psalm 22. You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? Mocking him and pouring derision upon Jesus. He will be treated in a spiteful, arrogant manner. These people will think that they are somehow better than he is. They will show their derision toward him, spitting in his face. When do you spit on somebody? Hopefully you don't spit on anybody. But that is is a sign of such anger and hatred and thinking so little of a person to spit upon them. And they would come and they would spit into his face. Couldn't help as I was reading this to think back a couple weeks ago, I talked about William Wallace. And I talked about that in terms of his betrayal. But also I was thinking back in terms of his humiliation as well. Okay, of course, William Wallace, uh, betrayed by some of his own countrymen, probably one of the knights who served under him is the most likely uh, person who did this, into the hands of the English and uh, to accomplish the will and purpose of the evil king, Edward. Before they execute him, they, they remove him from the Tower of England and they bring him on cart over a mile to the place of execution. And what do you think happens in that mile or so of travel? The rabble of London stands on the side of the streets. They hurl insults. They spit upon William Wallace. They throw things at him. They express their hatred towards him for a mile. That's even before he gets to the place of execution. Just like all of these people would pour their hatred and their ridicule trying to humiliate Jesus. That's not the worst of it. Jesus continues, After flogging him, they, the Gentiles, will kill him. These two active verbs describe what the Gentiles are going to do to him. He will be beaten brutally. They're going, they're going to break his will and his resolve by breaking his body. And it is then that he will be executed on the cross. The place for the worst of criminals is where he is going to die. William Wallace again. The worst of deaths appointed by the king because he was considered to be treasonous and wanting Scotland free. Thankfully, in Braveheart, they edited it down tremendously. (laughs) The the process of his death was like two minutes. 
They did not go into gory detail, which is very good, of what happened to someone in his particular circumstances. One of the things they would do is they would hang you to the point of death and then release the rope. Usually, just like Jesus, the, the criminal would have been stripped naked to be humiliated for all to see. So all the people, all the rabble could make fun of them even more during these experiences of his death. And then he, Wallace was to be drawn and quartered. I'm thinking when all of those things are happening, you're not really thinking about what you are or are not wearing at that particular moment. So horrendous is the death that Wallace experienced. Similarly, and just as bad, but for a longer period of time, was the death that Jesus experienced for his people. Jesus would be humiliated before he would finally die a humiliating death. But Jesus didn't think of that. Jesus wasn't overcome with that idea of this public humiliation like we can tend to be. Aren't we mortified when something like that happens to us? But Jesus was not mortified, for it says in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus thought little of the shame of the cross. He thought little of the humiliation that he was going to experience. He thought it of little account precisely for the joy that he was going to experience on the far end. The joy that would be restoration of his fellowship with the Father, the joy which would be the glory that he would receive as he is restored to his place, his rights and everything are restored, as it talks about in uh, Philippians chapter 2, you know, he has given the name above every name, and at his, at his name every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's going to receive glory. But it's not just that, it's also the fact that he has a redeemed people that he is able to present to the Father. For that, he considered his humiliation to be nothing, to be insignificant. What about us? If we are humiliated for the gospel, how do we respond to that? Do we tend to want to shrink up and go away and never come back again? Or do we have our eyes on the joy that is before us as well? That those who who make Christ known to others, He will make us known to others. We will enter into the the joy of the Father. Do we consider the humiliation we experience at making Christ known and having the resistance, do we consider that to be a great thing, a big thing, a huge stumbling block for us? Or do we count it as little and nothing and move forward and continue to make Christ known? Jesus redeemed us by his death, but he also sets a pattern for us in how to respond to something similar, which is exactly where Peter goes in 1 Peter. He mentions both. The atoning work of Christ upon the cross, but also the pattern for when we suffer according to God's will, how we are supposed to act. That wasn't the end of the story for Jesus because he says he will rise on the third day. Jesus will triumph over humiliation. He will triumph over death. 
He is, in fact, the first fruits of the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we have confidence that we, too, humiliated because we believe in Jesus Christ, we, too, will rise on the last day. And so Jesus suffered humiliation at the hands of the Gentiles, but thought nothing of it. Third, last part, is the notion that Jesus' suffering was cryptic. Communication errors happen all the time. There are, just, there are times when we just can't connect. Amy and I had one of those days on Friday. It just seemed like we were <laughs> talking about, I don't know what we were doing. Okay, it's a good thing she was in L.A. most of that time. We had very little interaction. But I, whenever that kind of those days happen, I always think of Cool Hand Luke. When the boss man says, what we have here is a failure to communicate. It just happens. And there's a, there's, a, there's a disconnect that happens between Jesus and the disciples all through this passage. Because we see that, you know, earlier on, when these people are bringing infants to him, that he might touch them, the disciples get angry and they begin to rebuke the people. And Jesus says, no, 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 let them come to me. The disciples, when hearing about the fact that um, it is easier for the camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, they go, "Ah, then who can be saved? They keep misunderstanding Jesus. They get part of what he says, but not all of what he says. And so Luke records the fact that they understood not, that they did not grasp The disciples just could not comprehend what Jesus had just told them. They had no insight as to what was going on, why this would be, or even what would be. This was outside of their categories. They didn't have anything to hang this on. They didn't understand it. They couldn't wrap their minds around it, put the pieces together, however you want to put it. My favorite press conference is less popular. That is Paul Silas when he was coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Frustrated over the refusal of the press corps to believe what he said or understand what he said. And he let this slip. What? Am I speaking Chinese? Jesus probably had a similar moment here. He's like, do you guys not understand what I'm telling you? It was hidden from them. The Greek word is uh, crypto, from which we get the gets translated transliterated over into cryptic. It was hidden, cryptic. Who hid it? God. God hid it from them. See, they're not the only ones who had trouble understanding Jesus. Acts 13, Paul talks about this. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Did you catch that? They didn't understand the promises, and yet by their acts, fulfilled those promises. And that's what we see with Judas. He does not understand these 
promises that are made, but he, in his act of betrayal, brings about the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so part of it being hidden from them was that so he would not act in a way that he's like, you know, or aware of the fact that he actually is fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture about the Messiah. He doesn't see himself as doing a good thing, bringing about God's will. He's just doing a selfish thing. This isn't working like I thought it would. Jesus isn't fulfilling the kingdom like I thought he would. I'm going to get what I can out of this while I can still get something out of this when he betrays Jesus. But it's not just about Judas. It's also about those who remain. Luke 24. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. The disciples would remember after the fact. What was cryptic, what was hidden, what, was, what they couldn't grasp, suddenly, boom, light bulb goes on. All the things that should have been clear suddenly become clear in the, in the light of day, so to speak. I, I'm reminded of the, of the movie Signs, which is one of those M. Night Shyamalan movies. I probably just mispronounced his last name. Sorry, M., if you ever hear me. And there are all of these things that are in the movie that don't make sense until the end of the movie. And one of them had to do with the, the brother who used to play baseball. Swing away, Merrill. That's all, you know, someone had basically given a prophecy of swing away, Merrill, and it never made sense until you get to the end of the movie when the alien is in their living room and tra- cornering them, and he has his bat from when he was a minor league baseball player. And suddenly, one of the kids says, ding, ding, light bulb, swing away, Merrill. And just as he had the longest home run in minor league history, supposedly, he put that wood on that alien's head. It all made sense. Now, after the resurrection, it's all going to make sense for the disciples. They're going to get it. They're going to proclaim it. This is be, they would become witnesses about what happened and that it fulfilled the Scripture. Okay? And that is part of the essential aspect of this. Jesus is laying the groundwork for what they're going to proclaim after his resurrection. They're going to remember, Jesus wasn't taken by surprise. He told us this would happen. And the reason he told us was that it was in the Scriptures. We need to search the Scriptures, or we need to tell people about the Scriptures, that they might know that this was supposed to happen for the salvation of sinners. So we have trouble with humiliation, don't we? We try to avoid it at all costs. And when it finds us, we either get angry or we run away and hide. Jesus did neither. He didn't hide from it, didn't run from it, didn't get angry. He knew the humiliation was coming because it was prophesied in Scripture. He thought very little of it because on the other side was glory and a redeemed people in fellowship with God. Are we willing to think little 
of his humiliation for our salvation. That's an obstacle for people. A humiliated Savior? We don't want that. Not only you know, that question, but are we, are we willing to think little of our own humiliation for the sake of the gospel? There's both of those that we really need to wrestle with. Are we willing to focus on our resurrection and the knowledge that we are instruments of God's redeeming work to bring the knowledge of salvation to sinners? Are we willing to go there? Or are we going to be afraid of being humiliated? Let's pray. Father, there's an interesting symmetry in um, us um, being saved by a humiliated Savior. That it was His humiliation that uh, earned life for us. And yet You bid us to not fear our own humiliation. That we might make His known to other people. His greater, more effective, more important humiliation. your spirit be at work. Because embracing that is contrary to everything that is in us. It is only a work of your spirit that can get us to embrace a humiliated Savior and to proclaim that humiliated Savior at the risk of our own humiliation. But I ask that you would do it because I believe that's what your scriptures invite us to do. That is what the apostles did. And so make us people like that because of what Christ did for us. I ask this in his name. Amen.